This is Fran Bluegal for Crooks and Liars, and I'm very delighted to be talking today with Joan Walsh of Salon.com. Hello, Joan. Hi, Fran. Good to Great talk to, to you. you. Yeah. Oh, I'm thrilled. Uh, you have a wonderful new book out called What's the Matter with White People? And the subtitle is Why We Long for a Golden Age That Never Was. A Golden <laughs> Age That Never Was. And I think people are paying a lot more attention to the first half of that title than the second half and how provocative that is. I noticed that Ron Christie is calling you a racist now, and there just seems to be a lot of reaction to this pro- provocative title to your book. Why did you why did you title it that way? And uh, tell me a little bit about it. Well, of course, it's provocative. And of course, it's a little bit tongue in cheek. But, you know, on the left, we spend a lot of time wondering and worrying about the white working class. And why did they abandon the Democratic Party? And can we ever get them back or get more of them back? Uh, President Obama actually did better with white people and the white working class than uh President Clinton, Al Gore, John Kerry, uh, which people don't really tend to remember. They, uh, they focus more on the on his negative uh, approval ratings among whites, which we can talk about later. But at least for a moment in 2008, we were able to pull some of those folks back. So I'm used to left-wing liberal people wringing their hands over white people. Uh-huh. I was reading Charles Murray's book, uh, coming Apart, The State of White America, 1960 to 2010. I shouldn't be giving him a free plug, but anyway, <laughs> I was reading it, and I w- did a lot of work on poverty issues in the 80s, and I knew Charles Murray's losing ground uh, was really foundational in terms of helping sort of fuel the backlash against welfare um, and, and against the Democratic Party, quite quite honestly. Uh, because it said that poverty programs basically created poverty because they discouraged marriage and hard work and honesty and thrift and all those great virtues, mainly in black people, uh, because they could then rely on the dole and not have to get married and hunker down like the rest of us. Now, Everyone in my field knew that that was crazy, and people took apart his arguments and his data, but it was hugely influential. And I'm reading Charles Murray's book, and I'm struck in the face by the fact that he is now saying exactly the same thing. At I should qualify that, not exactly, but virtually the same thing about the white working class and why its poverty rates are growing and its incomes are declining. It's not about the economy. It's not about the changes we've seen where we've shoveled money to the top 1%. It's about their morality. And I just had this aha moment that everybody's now talking about white people as a potential problem. Uh, and, you know, if, if I could get more white working class people and white middle class people to kind of see where Republican arguments lead, even for them, we would be having a better conversation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I picked the title to be provocative, to to elicit interest, but also to get to get white people to realize, you know, they're talking about you too now. You might right. want to to what they're really saying. Why did you decide to write this book? I've been puzzling over how the Democrats lost the white working class for a long time. Uh, and, you know, I did realize that I was kind of uh, 
I kind of had a front row seat to how it happened, except I was a kid and I didn't understand a lot of it. But, you know, my family split, as I've said, um, down the middle. And a lot of my relatives on both sides of my family became Nixon supporters. Some people who voted for JFK in 60 went with Nixon, the guy he defeated either in 68 or 72. Um, And so I really wanted to understand that better because I saw echoes of some of the conflicts, a lot of the conflicts, even, you know, as late as the 2008 campaign. And I guess when I went back and began to do the research, I, I realized that there's a fundamental split at the heart of our political debate right now to this day. And that is, there was a golden age for white people. And, and we should acknowledge it for a lot of white people, not all white people. We, we all, you know, a lot of us stayed poor, but you know, my dad's family, my, my dad personally climbed from poverty to the working class, to the middle class, to the upper middle class in his lifetime. Um, and he was always very clear about the ways that government encouraged that rise it for everyone on uh, not just him that you know the new deal made it easier to unionize uh, and that lifted wages we i don't know that he lectured me about tax policy i'm going to be honest about that one <laughs> but when i went back and looked i even i was kind of shocked you know the ta- the, the top marginal tax rate under dwight eisenhower a republican was 90, something like 91 percent mm-hmm. uh we made decisions after the Great Depression and after World War II to flatten income inequality because we were scared of both the Depression as well as communism and fascism and social unrest. So we built this great middle class as a result of political decisions. And so we had the GI Bill, which helped uh, returning GIs uh, buy houses and go to college. Uh, we built public universities you know, before the war. One in three college-age people went to college. Excuse me, I got that backwards. Before the war, it was one in eight. By 1970, it was one in three. Uh, we encouraged home ownership for ev- practically everybody. Let's qualify it. Uh, the government got in the business of subsidizing mortgages, guaranteeing mortgages. We built highways out to the suburbs so we could have the white picket fence and the dream. That's the golden age. Uh And you can understand why people miss it. But the problem is there are two problems. One is I think the white middle class and working class doesn't always recognize that so much of their climb was enabled by government programs. People truly believe they did that, did it by themselves. Uh, And the other ginormous problem is that most of the programs that I've described either discriminated against black people or didn't uh, didn't prohibit discrimination against black people. Um, Jeff Canada of the Harlem Children's Zone reminded me a few months ago that Robert Moses made some uh, freeway overpasses, parkway overpasses, too low for buses to come out to Long Island deliberately uh, to keep you know the the teeming masses out of out of the suburbs. So black and You know, people recognize that there were a lot of things that they didn't get, uh, but white people don't even realize that they got those things. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of a fundamental um, divide in the discourse. And I feel like if people understood those two narratives better, we, we might be able to have a better conversation about it. And it's it's hard for white people and especially well-meaning liberals, I think, 
us us well-meaning white liberals to talk about race and talk about white privilege and white race resentment without falling into a lot of traps. And I really love how your book sailed over those kind of traps by keeping it a personal story about you and your life. Talk to me about your personal history and how, tell me about how being a white person fighting racism how we can do that without falling into those traps, I guess, is the question I'm asking. Oh, I don't think we can do it without falling into traps. You know? <laughs> Good. Uh, and I don't think I've avoided traps, you know, in my career or mm-hmm. probably in the book. I really appreciate your saying that. Um, but I felt like it was helpful to lay myself bare and be honest about even some things that are embarrassing to me in hindsight, because I do think that's the way to do it. And I do think that we all say we want to have a conversation about race, but we really don't. We're really left and right. We are safer when we're in the land of platitudes, whatever our platitudes may be. And so I think the only way into this is going to be through stories. And so I thought by telling mine in this particular way, it might get other people to tell theirs. That's really what Mm -hmm. it's about. And you talk a lot about your dad in this book. He bridged between what you call the different parts of Nixon land. You borrow from Rick Perlstein a lot in this uh, book. What that bridge was in terms of his Irish Catholic working class life and his politics. Well, I think the bridge was Catholicism. And that was the Catholicism that I grew up with. Uh, My father was born on the eve of the Great Depression, uh, about 10 months after his parents landed on Ellis Island from Cork. Uh, they were very poor. They they did have a network of family here, uh, and New York was a great place to be Irish back then. So so they got some help, but life was very very hard. They were poor, uh, and when he was thirteen, he was sent away to a Christian Brothers boarding school, basically to become a Christian brother. Uh, and you know, back when I was a little bit snottier about this stuff. I called that foster care for the Irish poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, people in my family didn't talk to me for months. Uh, and, and I now understand the condescension that, that was in that term. But the fact is people did send their kids away because they couldn't afford to take care of them. And they hoped that they had vocations. There was no finer thing than to be a Christian brother, except maybe to be a priest. Uh, and one of my uncle's, tried for a while to be a priest. And so let me stop there because that's, that's yeah. real. That's a trap for the left right there to, uh, to, to sort of dismiss the depth of religious feeling and devotion and focus on the material uh, and not understand how they're intertwined. My father did think he had a vocation. He did. I say in the book, you know, my aunt was crying and she said to me, they had vocations. And I said, they were 13. Both right. You know, uh, it, it was probably a hard choice to send their, their kids away, but they thought they were doing what was best. Uh, and so he got a great education. The three brothers who joined religious orders all went to college, all got great educations, all left uh, the, their orders and got, and I have a lot of cousins. I'm very happy about that. Uh, but, and ironically, or whatever the word is, they became Democrats. And then his two siblings, whose two brothers, uh, who stayed at home, and my aunt, who was the smartest one in the family and didn't go to college, 
they wound up Republicans. And that's another tough thing to navigate because it can sound when I describe that like I'm saying liberals are smart and conservatives are dumb. And I don't mean that at all. Mm-hmm. That was the road that they wound up on, the, the separate the separate path they wound up on, at least partly as a result of their experience growing up and their education. Uh, it's a tough thing to talk about. But my father really took seriously the civil rights movement and, and depicted it as a struggle of good against evil in a way that I think, you know, there are certain things you never get over in your childhood. I mean, that's a good thing to not get over. There mm-hmm. are probably things. But um, I think that was burned into me at, a, you know, as a toddler. Uh, and so I think that accounts for some of the depth of my feeling and some of the work that I've done, all the work I've done, really. Do you think that religion is the bridge now between those on the right and those on the left? Do you think there's a possible way to uh, talk to one another? One of the things that we try to do on our podcast is provide vocabulary for liberals to talk to their neighbors. And I'm always looking for ways that we can talk to one another without spouting a bunch of charts or trying to simply convince someone that you're right. Is there a way... Does one have to be a person of faith to find that bridge, I guess is what I'm asking. Do you think that that's true? No, I don't think one has to be a person of faith to find that bridge. I think one has to – well, let's let's be specific about, about the 60s um, because I think that's where a lot of our troubles start. I mean, they, they go way back, uh, as mm-hmm. I show in the book, but – that's where a lot of our, our modern troubles and our modern vocabulary for politics begins. Uh, and I think that what I saw in this book, and also I give Rick Perlstein a ton of credit in the book because it was really reading Nixon land that I was like, oh, my God, I was there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. That was scary. And so I think my first insight as I was writing uh, and reading was – you know, that was a scary time for a lot of people. And it wasn't just because of race or racism. Um, you know, Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act 47 years ago this month. Uh, and five days later, Watts went up in flames. Uh, that was the beginning, really, of conserv- a conservative backlash that said government has done too much for those people. Um, the, <laughs> the police chief uh, in L.A. said it was a result of people making people feel like they're being mistreated. I don't have the quote right, but yeah, you know, but that was right. He, he said something to the effect of Johnson made them feel like they were mistreated in Watts. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, you know, which, which is crazy talk, but, but the, the reaction to the disorder and the, the fusing of, wow, just when we started to, do the right thing, people started to rebel, maybe it's not the right thing. I think those things were fused. Uh, you know, the other thing that happened that I, that, that I think we have to talk about is crime did go up. Divorce rates did go up. Uh, there was a kind of generalized unraveling uh, of society that people blamed on the liberation movements when they were actually the result of many, many much more complicated changes. But, you know, the civil rights movement is the most important movement in our history. The feminist movement is, uh, is tied. I hate doing one is more important than the other. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Right. Gay rights. These, these movements were, were crucial. Uh, but 
they seem to unravel a, a social cohesion that we had, that golden age that I talk about. Um, and they came along with a, a kind of violent fringe that was always a fringe, but that really scared people. And, you know, I watched it in my mother. My father stayed a civil rights liberal till the day he died. My father sent money to the Southern Poverty Law Center when I had never heard of it. Mm-hmm. He my first subscription to Mother Jones and In These Times. I later worked at In These Times. Um, he was really extraordinary. But my mother became more conservative out of a sense of fear. And I, I don't believe it was racism. She would tell me that, you know, Jackie Robinson <laughs> supports Richard Nixon and Sammy Davis Jr. supports R- Richard Nixon. Um, we never got her to tell us whether she voted for Nixon in 72. It, she said it was a secret ballot, but... <laughs> and of course, all of that happened, all of those liberation movements and all of that fear came right at the time of the Arab oil shock, which meant we weren't number one anymore. All of a sudden, we were victims of a country and a region that, that we had no quote unquote control over. So exactly. uh, all of the economic stuff that went on to to push women into the workforce and make these changes really was a scary time for a lot of people. Do you mind if we uh, switch and talk about um, Todd Aiken for a moment? And I I particularly want to get into your article that you wrote a few months ago on preaching what we practice, uh, which I thought was the best article written on birth control and Catholicism ever. Oh, thank you. Yeah. uh, This whole issue of Aiken and abortion, and again, I think it goes back to personal stories. One of the things that conservatives don't seem to be able to argue against are personal stories. Uh, yes. You were you were at a panel discussion yesterday uh, where a personal story came up. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, Gabrielle Union. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Was, I was privileged to be on a panel with Lily Ledbetter. Uh, it was it was an extraordinary day, and and the actor Gabrielle Union, and she was there to talk about her work with Planned Parenthood, but she confided to an audience of millions, uh, that she was a sexual abuse survivor. And she talked about her, her anger and, and sorrow at the uh, insane uh, comments of Todd Aiken. And it, it, you know, it made me feel like I'd been mocking it and talking about voodoo vaginomics and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. guys are, are so obsessed with the, the way our lady parts work. But, you know, I thought that Gabrielle, just brought it home that it's it's not a joke it's not it, it, it's 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 a devastating thing and that these guys could not really respond with any kind of emotion or that you know to the extent that people were angry at Aiken yesterday Republicans I mean it was because he was blowing their chance to take back the Senate it wasn't because he was saying something so ugly to millions of American women so you know, I, I, these sexual issues are so fundamental, too. And, you know, having grown up Catholic, I really understand kind of in my gut what the the reaction against abortion is about. But the way that I struggled through it is kind of it, it's related to this stupid debate over rape, because in the end, who's going to who's going to decide what kind of rape you had? You know, it's preposterous. Um, and and for me, I came to the same point around the, the whole issue of choice. There are so many complicated reasons that women make that choice. Uh, there may be some that I disagree with, honestly. 
But I can't imagine anyone being able to make that choice better than the woman herself. Well, I also think that there's a bigger issue here, too. I I was thinking about the Soptic ad with uh, Bain Capital and getting fired and losing his health care and eventually his wife dying of cancer and this very personal story. And the Republican Party immediately turning it around to he's calling Mitt Romney a murderer rather than dealing with the actual story of the actual person who suffered and dealing with the suffering that was a result of the policy that Bain Capital had of not providing additional health care to laid off employees. And these personal stories that come out in your book, in rape victims stories, laid off worker stories, these personal stories there doesn't seem to be a way for conservatism to answer that. And so there's a, a tilt toward, you know, mega issues of, oh, you know, you won't forgive him for making a verbal flub when we all know that's not what this was at all. This is a this is misogyny, plain and simple. And it's a statement of basically, you know, the Republican Party platform pretty much, except yeah. put, put in very graphic language. Yeah. yeah. Who would have thought that this race would would keep coming back to issues of women's freedom, um, mm-hmm. whether it's contraception a few months ago or uh, the, the capacity of a, a rape survivor to have an abortion, if that's her choice. And I think it is the last gasp of a kind of culture war that I that I talk about in the book. I think that the right was very good at fusing a lot of things that happened at the same time for people who were frightened. And one of them was that women were leaving the home and children's lives seemed uh, less secure and less stable. And I think a lot of people were able to uh, sort of stigmatize women's freedom and blame it for these changes that were happening in society. But I think it's important that we uh, that we are sympathetic to the idea that there have been things that, that did get worse. Why don't we talk about uh, Liz Cheney for just a minute? Uh, Liz Cheney was memorable. Um, I think that people came to appreciate my capacity to stand up to some of these right-wing bullies. And, you know, I got a lot of credit for standing up to Liz Cheney. But the the funniest thing and I think the most telling thing about that debate, it was about torture. But let's leave aside the (laughs) the details for a minute. Um, And... It was Campbell Brown, who's back in the news, uh, not for good reasons, but it was the Campbell Brown show. And Campbell asked us, we, this, we were on for two segments, and Campbell asked us, why don't you two take a minute and think about whether you can find common ground on something? And, you know, I'm sitting there in the commercial break, and I come up with, well, we both love our fathers. Oh, wow. <laughs> but... <laughs> Campbell went to Liz first, and Liz says, no, I can't think of anything that we have in common. Gosh. And I, and then I did come out with, well, we both <laughs> love our fathers, which on one level is so silly, mm-hmm. but on another level it's like, really? You can't even reach across the aisle to come up with one human thing? You could say we both have feet, you yeah, know, but yeah. that's... That is what Republicans have been doing to us for the last 40 or 50 years. We are not good people. We are not moral people. We may not even be people. It was such a dehumanizing moment, but I also think it dehumanized her. And, I, you know, I remember getting a lot of, you know, 
praise when I was kind of embarrassed that I came up with kind of a silly girly answer um, mm-hmm. because her father is a terrible person responsible for many people being dead. Yeah, and my I father- applaud for you for bringing her father into the conversation, actually. <laughs> anyway, that was that's the Liz Cheney story. That's the Liz Cheney story. I want everyone to know how much I personally enjoyed reading your book. And uh, again, the name of the book is What's the Matter with White People? Don't let the the book titles scare you off. This is so readable, so enjoyable. It's a book you can take to bed with you and absorb in a couple of nights. I just ate it up, and I really thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, Joan Walsh. Oh, thank you so much. Me too. We'll do it again. We sure will. This interview with Joan Walsh on behalf of the blog Crooks and Liars was produced by the Professional Left Podcast, professionalleft.blogspot.com.